Thank you for joining us today as we discuss the 2022 Blueprint for Moving Missouri Forward. We publish this document annually to identify key reforms that we believe will have the greatest impact in helping Missouri grow and Missourians prosper. Good afternoon, I'm Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute, and we're very proud to launch this publication. For those of you who don't know us, the Institute is an independent research and education organization. We focus on Missouri fiscal and economic policies from a free market lens. We want Missouri to be a state that leads the nation in wealth, quality education, and a flourishing civil society. Much needs to be done to get us there, but we have a roadmap in our blueprint. You can learn more about the Institute at showmeinstitute.org, Facebook at Facebook backslash showmeinstitute, or on Twitter at showme. I wanna get some housekeeping out of the way before we begin. Zach Longhorn, the Communications Director of Show Me Opportunity, is going to be our moderator today. He'll introduce the speakers and take questions during their briefings. To ask a question, look at the bottom of your Zoom screen and you can click on the Q&A box. You can type your questions there. Zach will identify when we have a question and read the question submitted. You can submit your questions at any time. And with that, let's get the program started, Zach. All right, thank you, Brenda. Uh, as she mentioned, please submit your questions using the Q&A box below. We do want this to be interactive. We have a lot to get to, so let's get started. And I want to start with Susan Pendergrass, our Director of Research and Education Policy. Um, Susan, you're responsible for the education items in this year's blueprint. And today, the State Board of Education released their 2022 legislative priorities. Mm -hmm. what'd, you see, uh, what'd you see in that document? I mean, it was pretty fascinating, to be honest. The Show Me Institute, we always talk about the need for school choice for parents. And we always talk about the endless list of reasons why your one assigned school might not work for your child. It could be masks and vaccines. It could be curriculum. It could be the performance of the school. Your child could be bullied. There's any number of reasons why a parent may want to switch schools. And in their legislative priorities, the State Board of, of Education seems to have finally acknowledged this, something that they've been reluctant to do. And one of their legislative priorities is to create a system of interdistrict choice where every student in the state, hopefully, would be able to choose to go to a school in a different district than the one they live in. And that's a pretty bold move. Right now in Missouri, if you can prove that you have a transportation hardship because of a natural barrier, like there's a school that's closer to you, even though it's a different district, you can apply to go to that district. And that's about it. And so this finally acknowledges that parents want options and that parents need options. And I hope I hope to see the, the State Board of Education in the same committee hearings that I go to, to give testimony and that we're on the same side of the table and that we are all working together to expand options for parents. So before we move forward and look at the blueprint for next year, can you remind viewers uh, what happened in the session last year as it uh, relates to education? There was a lot of movement. It was a hot topic last year as we anticipate it will be this year. Um, but uh, what happened in 2020? Yeah, so last year we finally got a private school choice bill in Missouri. We've been trying to do that also for years. That's been in our blueprint. And finally last year, and of course, you know, you've got the pandemic, you've got a lot of things at play. We've got test scores that are way down. We've got parents that are really mad and being increasingly vocal. And finally, the legislature listened and they passed a, a limited school choice bill in that um, 
if uh, taxpayers like you and I or corporations give money to a, a scholarship granting organizations, you can get 100% credit against the state taxes you have to pay to, the, to Missouri. And those scholarship granting organizations can give out uh, scholarships to students who apply, low-income students and students with disabilities, and they can use that money to pay tuition at a private school or to uh, do other educational options like homeschooling or tutoring or educational materials. And so finally, parents do have uh, a financed option to, to, do, to choose something other than their local public school. You said it was limited. What are some of the other limitations that were put on? Yeah, that? so you know how legis <laughs> uh, legislation happens. They had to give and take a bit. So some of the rural legisla legislators were very opposed to it. So to get their votes across the board, uh, it's limited to only communities of 30,000 or more or communities that are chartered. So it's St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, Columbia, Jefferson City, just a limited number of communities where children will be eligible for this. We're hoping, and it's in our blueprint that we're talking about today, to expand that for every child in the state. Now, uh, because the contributions from taxpayers are limited to $25 million, and every student can get you know, 6,500, that's only three or 4,000 students who can participate right now. So we also would like to see that limit go up, but it's a great first step. And we finally have a program in place and the treasurer's office has launched a website, mostscholars.org. They've hired somebody to run it. Hopefully very soon you'll be able to start contributing. And um, we're hoping that the first scholarships will be awarded in fall 2022. So it was a good first step how did that inform or did it inform the items that were included in the uh, 2022 it did inform it insofar as like there is this sort of groundswell of parent involvement and parent um, attention to education if you you know if anyone followed the gubernatorial election in virginia you know parents have become a political force and they vote so it did contribute to i think pressure on legislators to realize that in our blueprint, basically, we want every parent in the state to have at least two in-person options plus a high-quality virtual. So that could look like expanding the ESA program. It could look like inter-district choice, what, what we talked about before. Also, expanding charter schools statewide so that if in any community, if a group wants to open a charter school and their local school board says no, they can appeal that to the state charter school commission and hopefully get chartered that way. And in addition, finally, the last one is our virtual program, uh, MOCAP, Missouri Course Access Program, program, expanding that or changing that, in, in fact, so that it becomes its own school district and students can just apply to be in that school district without asking permission from their uh, superintendent. And finally, before we move on, have you seen anything interesting in pre-filing as it relates to, to school yeah. choice expansion? Just about everything that we're looking for, just about, I'd say eight of 10, has already got at least one bill pre-filed. The one thing that we've talked a lot about in the last year is true accountability for Missouri schools and really good and useful report cards on every Missouri school and district. I'm not sure that that one has been pre-filed yet, although there is one bill that would create a school accountability board that was pre-filed by Senator O'Loughlin, and I'm hoping that that has teeth in it, but Beyond that, the interdistrict choice, the expansion of charter schools, the expansion of the ESA program, and a few others have already been pre-filed, and we will certainly be, I will certainly be tracking those. All right. Well, speaking of accountability, our director of government accountability is Patrick Ishmael. And uh, Patrick, you have a couple items in this year's blueprint. 
And the first one is local government transparency. In the last two years, uh, local governments have received uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. There's a lot of money flowing in. There's been some emergency powers that have been enacted through local governments. Um, what are what's the focus this year for moving uh, the moving the needle on local government transparency? Yeah, well, thanks. So the last couple of years have been obviously tumultuous for state and local and, and of course, the federal government as well. But I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that uh, taxation itself is a taking, that we are taking money from the public and that the public expects not only services, but also transparency and accountability. And we've been working on transparency projects particularly sunshine law related projects for a number of years and, and have looked very closely at local government over the last five or so years. Uh, we conducted our show me checkbook project, uh, started that uh, I think four or five years ago. Uh, and we had all sorts of uh, cities uh, giving reasons for why they just couldn't provide the, the data they were asking for. We asked for, you know, how are you spending your money? That's part of transparency and accountability. And when you look at cities like Hollister or Battlefield, uh, it was always fascinating. They wanted to charge tens of thousands of dollars for records. And so whether you're in a COVID envi environment or whether you're just in a good governance environment pre-COVID, it's important that the public have confidence and be able to see exactly how money is being spent on their behalf. And so this year we had the good fortune of seeing HB 271 pass. And what HB 271 included was a voluntary version of the show me checkbook transparency portal that we've talked about for a few years now. Uh, voluntary is okay, but you really want to make sure that cities are required to participate so that it doesn't matter where you live, uh, whether you get transparency or not, that you will get to see exactly how uh, uh, your money is being spent. And of course, the treasurer's office a few years before that also has a similar voluntary checkbook. This year, I think it's important that uh, especially in this environment where, you know, everything is kind of online to make available these spending records so that the public can see exactly how money is being spent rather than have a voluntary system uh, where cities participate require that as a condition of them being able to take money from people, uh, tell them that they need to report how they're spending that money. And if they can't or won't do that, I think that's a problem. Again, transparency, uh, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and transparency is I think central to good governance and, and to trust in government. And uh, until we get to a point where uh, the public can readily see uh, in an easily accessible, easily understandable format, uh, what government is doing on their behalf, whether you're talking about spending or whether you're talking about something like curricula, um, I think that you, we're just not in the best sort of place. And the state has the power, the question is whether it has the will to require this uh, of cities and other local governments, uh, whether it's a county or whether it's a special taxing district. Hopefully this will be the year where we get a mandatory checkbook uh, transparency portal, uh, uh, my fingers are crossed. Uh, a viewer asked if uh, the checkbook you were referencing is related to the state treasurer's checkbook. So maybe you could um, kind of speak about how, how that those two relate. It, it is. It is related to the state treasurer's uh, checkbook. And the state treasurer has a terrific checkbook uh, program already in place for those that are already participating. I think it's focused mainly on counties right now. Um, but it is uh, an important like first step. Uh, the treasurer's office at the time was... Uh, the first to really jump onto this issue of local transparency. And keep in mind that when we talk about uh, state spending, you know, the state spends in the ballpark of about $35 billion a year in a, in a normal year. But what a lot of people don't know is that local government spends 
about $35 billion a year as well. And the only difference is that the state is a giant target. There are a lot of people who can ask questions of the state. The local government is spread across, you know, a, a thousand cities, 114 counties, uh, you know, 500 school districts, countless uh, special taxing districts. And so uh, I think it took a little while for, you know, the, the importance of local oversight, like close local oversight by not just the state, but also the public more, more uh, generally uh, for that idea to really catch on. And I'm thankful that the treasurer's office took it on. They've done a great job with it. Uh, and, and certainly uh, Representative John Weeman, who took on HB 271, uh, the new uh, project that's going to be under, I think, the Office of Administration, also an excellent step forward. But I think at the end of the day, whether it's a merger of the projects, or, uh, whatever the course might be, uh, I think we need to mandate transparency because voluntary transparency, you're going to get the, 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 I think, a lot of the local governments that um, may be doing the right thing anyway, and they'll be getting the scrutiny. And the folks who uh, maybe don't want to uh, participate voluntarily, maybe that's where all the, the malfeasance or misspending might be happening. Mandatory transparency, I think, is a better route. But certainly, we've, we've seen forays into this in the past. Good first steps, but certainly not the, the final step that we'd want to see for really good, robust, and comprehensive local transparency. Your other item in the blueprint this year is free market healthcare reforms. And one of those policy suggestions is making some of the temporary waivers that were put in place uh, during the response to the pandemic, making those permanent. Uh, so what are what would some of those uh, permanent waivers, what would those do and how would those uh, aid in making healthcare more accessible and affordable for Missourians? Yeah, and we've talked a lot for a long time about healthcare and improving healthcare. Our approach, I think, in general, could be described as more supply side oriented, where uh, we're trying to ensure that we can have the most number of doctors, the most uh, nurses possible to provide access to care. And the more of, of everything that you have, generally speaking, prices come down. Um, certainly, when COVID first started, one of our primary priorities was uh, to uh, push for interstate license reciprocity, um, uh, the idea that you can have folks come from out of state and not have to go through a, a, a rigmarole, an unnecessarily uh, relicensing uh, process to come and treat and provide help to uh, Missourians that need help. That is indicative of the kind of philosophy that we have. And fortunately, we not only got a waiver on that front, but we actually had an actual law passed that established interstate license reciprocity uh, in the state uh, uh, pushed by Representative Derek Ryer, uh, and it is a, uh, a nation-leading kind of state reform that the state of Missouri uh, should be very proud of. But there were other items, too, that it, when you're talking about expanding supply, uh, you really want to start looking at things like scope of practice, looking at exactly what nurses in the state of Missouri might not be able to do, but in other states are, uh, looking for flexibility there where uh, you may not uh, be able to necessarily add more nurses, but you may be able to add to the sorts of things that nurses can do. There are waivers in place that uh, allow for some flexibility in that for nurses currently. Those waivers ought to be made permanent. Same with telemedicine. Telemedicine, of course, is medicine that is practiced remotely. Uh, we want to make sure that all of those waivers are made permanent so that uh, uh, Missourians are able to access care, whether it's by phone, by Zoom, uh, and in any other way so that they can find the treatment that they want, not only in a COVID environment, but in any kind of environment, uh, when things go back to normal, and they, they will go back to normal, um, but uh, when they go back to normal, these reforms, I think, 
uh, are, are great examples of when you let the free market, when you let people help one another, uh, the good things that can come with it. I mean, we talk about being a free market think tank all the time, but really all a market is, is people. And so when we say we believe in the market, we're saying that we believe in people to help each other, to make their communities better off, the state better off, this country better off, and this world better off. And that's why uh, providing for flexibility, regulatory flexibility, statutory flexibility, not just in the COVID environment, but uh, in a normal uh, healthcare environment as well is so important. Uh, and that's why uh, those items remain in this blueprint uh, and why it's important to provide that kind of flexibility because if you believe in markets, if you believe in people, you got to make sure that they have a clear pathway uh, to be able to help one another. All right, thank you, Patrick. David Stokes, our director of municipal policy, want to bring you in here. Uh, so your item this year is uh, economic development subsidies. Last night in the St. Louis area in Webster Groves, there was a huge victory. Uh, what happened and why is it important? Well, the Webster Groves City Council last night rejected a very large uh, development there, which included a number of troubling characteristics, including uh, 35 to $40 million tax subsidy and the, the involvement of eminent domain. So the developers were going to get authority from the city to take property from people in the development area who didn't wish to sell it to them. So obviously those parts are very troubling. There were a number of other parts of the development that others in Webster Groves were opposed to. And it was definitely heartening to see the city council reject the, the proposal with, for a number of reasons, including the eminent domain and the tax subsidies. So we've seen across Missouri an increase slowly but surely. We saw it in, we saw it in Boonville earlier this year where, where residents and local officials are starting to oppose a lot of these giant tax subsidies that developers have been asking for around the state for a long time. And the increased fiscal discipline is, is wonderful to see. So what are you, what changes are you putting forward in the 2022 blueprint to further address some of the issues that you think remain with economic development subsidies? Well, we want to build on some of the some of the successes we've had in recent years in the state legislature in the 2021 session. They passed a, a comprehensive uh, subsidy reform bill that included, among other important changes, uh, severe limitations on the use of tax increment financing in the floodplains around the state of Missouri, and also expanded slowly but surely the number of counties that are using countywide TIF commissions from three to four. And we want to keep expanding that. It might not sound like a lot to add one more to it, but it had been the first county added to that list in a decade. And when we talk about our priorities for 2022, we definitely want to keep moving forward with subsidy reform. That includes tax increment financing reforms, reforms to transportation development districts and community improvement districts, the abuse of property tax abatements, and many other types of the alphabet soup of tax subsidies that our state uses at the state, and especially at the local level. Some of the specific improvements, changes we're recommending in the blueprint include additional expansion of the county TIF commission format, where the tax incurred financing choice is made by a committee appointed primarily by county representatives, as opposed to city representatives. Cities are often competing against each other for, for their own business development and sort of a race to the bottom, where county officials have shown in St. Charles, St. Louis and Jefferson County to take a much more regional viewpoint of these subsidy decisions. And it's worked much better there. We also based a lot on what we saw in Boonville, 
but uh, elsewhere, we'd, we'd love to see Right now with tax increment financing, there's a few small taxing entities that are exempt from the TIF, uh, such as often emergency care sales taxes cannot be captured by the TIF. We'd love to see a much larger expansion of that. And for every residential component of tax increment financing, and this could also work for property tax abatements as well, that the schools, the school financing for that tax subsidy would not be included in the subsidy so that you wouldn't have what was proposed in Boonville, which is a subdivision of four to 500 new homes, where those homes would not be paying taxes to the school district, despite the fact that they would likely bring in hundreds of new children into that school district. And we've seen very similar things in Webster Groves, which was one of the reasons the Webster Groves School District opposed the TIF and helped lead the fight against it at the decision last night. Finally, we'd like to see tightening up of the blight definition Blight is a difficult thing to define. Certainly lawyers and planners and accountants are gonna always try to get around any definition of blight you put forth out there. But we'd like to see a tightening up of that definition, a more strict application of the term blight, and especially out ending the practice of people who own their own property, letting it go into a blighted condition so that they can then apply for tax increment financing or other subsidies based on the fact that it is blighted. So we'd definitely like to see the removal of property owners intentionally letting them their own property get blighted so that they can then qualify for subsidies going forward. So those are the key changes we've suggested in the, in the blueprint. And we definitely hope people are gonna jump on them in the 2022 legislative session. Before I move on, I do wanna give you an opportunity to respond to a viewer question. Uh, do these subsidy packages ever live up to the hype? Rarely, but yes. I mean, you can certainly see uh, in this in this race that all the cities are competing against each other. You can see examples where, like when for the Walmart that was on the border of Bridgeton and St. Anne, well, Bridgeton gave the Walmart a tax subsidy to move a few blocks off of the border entirely into Bridgeton. Well, St. Anne lost a lot of tax fu tax funding right then and there with that move. Uh, Bridgeton might claim itself to be a winner in that. I don't think there'll be a winner in the long run. But the problem with these cities competing against each other so much is that it doesn't add to our tax base. It, it generally, as the saying would be, it's mostly just rearranging the deck chairs on the on the Titanic, and it's not expanding the tax base while it's while it's it's sort of the race to the bottom here. So sure, there are individual examples of of tax subsidies that may have worked in the view of, of the city, but usually they don't work in a much more regional perspective. And that's why so many of the studies that we cite regularly and are in so many Institute, many Show Me Institute policy papers, especially the East-West Gateway Council of Government study of TIF in the St. Louis region, show that as a region, these subsidies fail. They don't lead to job growth. They don't lead to economic growth. They just generally lead to higher profit margins for the developers. Thank you, David. Uh, Dr. Aaron Headland, our chief economist, one of your items this year, it's a new item, it's uh, on unemployment insurance in Missouri. And uh, you said that Missouri's unemployment system is uh, inefficient and ineffective and does not encourage people to find new jobs. But other than that, um, so Aaron, what do we do to fix uh, the issues with the unemployment system? Yeah, absolutely, Zach. So this is a critical issue right now. I mean, it doesn't take reading the newspaper that often to see that we're in the midst of epic labor shortages. 
Uh, so it's true that if you look at the unemployment rate, it looks like, wow, unemployment's really low again. Are we, are we kind of back to normal? Uh, but that's not the case. The reality is a lot of people have left the labor force. Missouri is still conservatively 80,000 jobs below where it was pre-COVID. And, uh, and part of the reason for that is exactly the antiquated dinosaur unemployment insurance system we have that's basically discouraged people from working. Um, they're often, I mean, that was true to some extent as well back in the financial crisis of 07 09, but we saw that on steroids during COVID and we're still feeling the after effects. And really what it comes down to as step one is dealing with literally just the extremely old IT systems we have managing the system. Right, you might think, how is IT central to policy? But it's actually quite critical. The reason that, so rewind back to 2020, when COVID was hitting hard at the beginning there, the federal government implemented basically augmented unemployment benefits. People would get the normal benefit amount plus more. And because the computer systems for managing unemployment were so old, they couldn't tailor that to people's earnings. So instead what they did is they said, well, you'll get your normal unemployment benefits plus $600 a week. The result is that a large majority of workers who are unemployed actually got paid more to not work than to work. Now, for the first few months of the pandemic, that may not have been too much of a disaster because no one could even go to work. But the problem is that kept getting extended and extended and extended. And inexplicably, the Biden administration back in March of this year, extended it all the way to Labor Day. And what we've seen over the past several months, really most of this year, is record high job openings. In fact, just today, nationwide, 11 million job openings. Employers are struggling to hire. They're raising wages and they still can't hire. And even though the kind of that $600 weekly top up has gone away, people are still sitting on a mountain of government money that they've been able to save over the past year plus and therefore they're reluctant to go back to work. So the question is, what can we do going forward? Well, one reform that Missouri should absolutely pursue going forward is to just flat out prohibit unemployment benefit amounts from ever exceeding 100% of a worker's previous wages. But it should never be the case that workers get paid more to not work than to work. Uh, the other thing we can do, and then that's on top of my first suggestion, which is to modernize the IT systems. If we, if we modernize the IT systems for unemployment benefits, that makes it easier to track that people are actually eligible when they're receiving payments. It makes it easier to track uh, when they get a job to make sure that the benefits end for them. And it also makes it easier to say, if a future crisis arises and we do decide to make benefits more generous than maybe in normal times, we still always keep it tied to earnings so that it's never above 100%. Uh, in addition to that, I think going forward, we also wanna think about ways to where we don't want the decision of a, of a company to be purely binary between keeping a worker on uh, and laying them off entirely. So for example, when we hit another downturn or when an individual company you know, kind of runs into a soft patch, uh, we wanna make it easier for them to, rather than full scale laying off a bunch of workers to say, let's kind of reduce their hours, pay them less temporarily, and then allow workers to collect partial unemployment benefits uh, to basically, kind of keep people glued to each other, right? We want workers to stay connected to employers because what we've seen in this pandemic and in other recessions is that there's a big difference in terms of the speed of recovery between uh, temporary layoffs and people who have permanent job losses. But if you're temporarily laid off, then 
at least when business conditions improve, you have an employer to go back to and the overall economic recovery can be faster. But when you have permanent job losses, then even when the overall market starts to improve, those workers have to go through the costly search process of finding an employer that's a good fit for them. So basically strengthening that connective tissue between workers and employers during downturns is really critical. Uh, so one way to do that is to basically make the partial unemployment system a little more fluid. So there's fewer layoffs when there are downturns. Uh, and then lastly, when it comes to the unemployment system, uh, in terms of an immediate thing we can do is make sure that employers are in real time reporting to the Department of Labor whenever they hire someone. Uh, one, one thing that we saw a lot of during the pandemic was unemployment insurance fraud. Basically people who were collecting benefits when they should not have. And there've been studies that have been done uh, to kind of identify the different ways that fraud can pop up. And one of the ways that fraud can pop up is people keep collecting benefits even after they've accepted a job. And that's of course against the law, but we need to actually be able to enforce that more properly. And there's other things that we're looking at researching additional ways to modernize unemployment um, regarding unemployment insurance accounts and kind of other market friendly reforms. Uh, and we'll have more forthcoming on those objects. Uh, so speaking of the labor market, citing labor shortages in uh, in the state government, Governor Parson, and I want to bring Elias Chappelle, our senior analyst, in on this as well. But uh, Aaron, Governor Parson floated the idea of a $15 minimum wage for state employees and a 5.5% cost of living increase. We've, we kind of know the rules of uh, the, the economics when it's in the private sector. Do any of those rules change in regards to raising the minimum wage when it's in the public sector? And what are your thoughts on uh, Governor Parson's proposal? Yeah, that's an interesting point. So first of all, the minimum wage is one of those policies that always sounds good to people because they don't necessarily hear two sides of the story. Right? They don't hear that when you raise the minimum wage, especially when it's a large raise in the minimum wage, that businesses don't host as many jobs. And in fact, there have been studies that have been done, uh, for example, when Seattle really jacked up the, the minimum wage, that find that worker earnings don't actually necessarily go up that much. In fact, they can even fall because employers will cut back on hours. Now, when it comes to the state government, now the state government gets to decide how many workers to hire. So if they decide to pay more, uh, the state government need not cut back on labor. So that really the people who are on the hook there are uh, taxpayers, right? So taxpayers can always essentially be forced to fork over more money to the state government to, to pay workers based on whatever wage the government sets. Uh, so I don't think you'd see the job losses you'd see the private sector, but the question is, are taxpayers getting their money's worth? Like, what we want ideally is to have state workers get paid kind of whatever they're worth on, on the market, right? I mean, it's, or at least enough to entice them to stay in state government. I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for underpaying them, but kind of setting arbitrary pay levels uh, that are independent of their performance doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, and Elias, I want to bring you in on this. So your item is a budgetary reform in the blueprint. So this proposal from the budget, it would be $93 million, 53 from general revenue. Uh, as Missouri stands right now in our budget, what would something like that, is this not even a dent or is this a, a big scoop out of the budget? What What is it? Well, um, at first glance, $90 million is not really all too much in Missouri's budget, but there's really a bigger story there with this uh, wage increase, which is when Governor Parson is talking about increasing the wages of state employees, he's talking about this $90 million. This is for, um, assuming this could start on February 1st, 
and go through Jan uh, through June 30th. So that's only five months that it's going to cost $90 million. And so what we're talking about here is uh, state workers, they are already receiving a 2% raise on January 1st. And then along with the $15 minimum wage, you're talking about an additional 5.5% raise on top of that, and then $90 million to get through five months. But once you start looking into next year's budget, you're talking 200 plus million dollars. And so this is something that um, as time goes on, the salaries go up. And when you're looking at state, it's important to remember when you're looking at state employee salaries, you're not just talking about their hourly wage. You're talking about some of the most generous healthcare, uh, health insurance available and a lifetime pension system. So the, there's a lot more that goes to this. And this is something that state taxpayers are going to be on, on the hook for, you know, forever. I'm going to jump back to Aaron real quick and then back to Elias. Aaron, your other item in the blueprint is healthcare price transparency. It seems like weekly you read in uh, Wall Street Journal about, you know, an article about surprise billing, someone getting a $300,000 bill for what can be done to give people more confidence and uh, knowledge when shopping for healthcare and healthcare services? Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's no coincidence that three of the areas where the government intervenes the most are also where prices go up the fastest. Right? You have housing, you have healthcare, you have higher ed, or education really generally. And when it comes to healthcare, what the left often talks about is, well, market rules don't apply. You just really can't have a marketplace in healthcare. And the fact is that's just not true at all. It's true that in many ways we don't have a market, but that is exactly the prescription we need. Uh, we don't need more government intervention in, in the healthcare market. And so one area that is direly is really lacking is transparency, right? People have no way to shop about which providers they go to or what anything costs. Right? And that doesn't mean that you're gonna be shopping while you're on the way in the ambulance to the hospital, right? The idea is ahead of time, looking at different procedures or drugs or anything, you need to know what the price is. So uh, back in 2019, the Trump administration actually issued an executive order requiring hospital price transparency was bitterly fought by, by many um, in, the, in the industry, although not all. And the issue though is been one of enforcement. Uh, at the time with the executive order, it didn't have a lot of teeth. The penalties weren't all that high. So as a result, you have you know, nearly half of hospital, Missouri hospitals completely non-compliant. And just to take into account like the scope of things, you can get a, for example, a pelvic CT scan and if you were to look at the costs, depending on which hospital you go to in Missouri, and the price can vary by a factor of 20, right? So we're not talking minor price differences, we're talking dramatic price differences, and people are essentially behind a veil. There's no way to know. So uh, in addition to the fact that hospitals just aren't really complying, some hospitals, and a Wall Street Journal put out a report on this, have actually embedded code in their websites, because they're supposed to make this data available, to actively kind of prevent search engines from returning results. So they're actively getting in the way of people discovering what these prices are. And so what, what would consumers, what would patients really, because we know that healthcare is a very personal thing, what would patients see in a world where prices were more transparent? Well, first of all, this would unleash a torrent of innovation by all sorts of startups who could come into Missouri and come into other states that do this to really pull together the pricing information in a very user-friendly way, where someone could log on to a website, they can put in their insurance information, they can, and then basically, and then they can look up the procedure that they've been told they need, 
and it would tell you not just kind of the sticker price, but what they would actually have to pay and how that would vary by provider, right? That would make it so much easier, so much less stress for consumers. You don't have to kind of wait with bated breath for the explanation of benefits to come back and not knowing what you're gonna to have to actually pay for. So when it comes to what Missouri can do about that, well, number one is we can essentially replicate what the federal executive order did, but put it into legislation, into law at the state level, which is to require hospitals and other providers to publish pricing information available to the public and to make it in user-friendly machine-readable form. In other words, something where someone can actually download this data onto the computer and where, again, startup companies could generate websites and other user-friendly formats. And uh, moreover, we could expand this requirement to other non-hospital providers as well. So the, the executive order was somewhat limited in scope, although the administration was planning to expand. You know, we could go ahead and be part of that laboratory of democracy and, and show innovation and be kind of a, a leader for the rest of the country. And then also kind of once all that stuff is up, right, if we succeed in kind of creating this ecosystem for price transparency to go ahead and encourage doctors and insurance and insurers to show patients uh, how to look up those prices. So this sort of stuff has been done at a kind of a small level in places like New Hampshire and been successful at bringing down prices. And, and that is kind of one big step we can start down to creating a true marketplace for healthcare instead of having government control. Elias, budgetary reforms. Got a lot of money pouring into the state. You and Coriana uh, have co-authored, Coriana Buyer, have co-authored a paper earlier this year talking about how Missouri is one of the least prepared states for a recession. They always say about recessions, it's not if, it's when. We've got all this money now. What can we do to sure up the Missouri budget for the next recession? Sure. Well, right now is the best time to prepare for that next recession because what, what we see is a lot of times, you know, the legislature is worried about money and, you know, there's not time to look at these things. Well, right now there is a ton of money. There's revenue from uh, state tax collections are up almost 25% over 2020. Uh, the federal government has given Missouri almost uh, $7 billion and there's more on the way. And so what Missouri needs to be looking at, um, I mean, first step really is to uh, focus on transparency. And so that is making it easier to figure out where all this money is going. Now, um, Patrick talked a little bit about how local governments or how you can see the vendors that, um, you know, get government spending. But the issue is when you look at state government, how the budget works is these go to programs. There's programs that... Uh, the state is funding that we don't know how they're uh, we don't know how they're working we don't know if they're being successful they're not tracking it and if you go try to figure out any of this stuff you have thousands of pages of pdfs and so to really figure out where things are uh, sitting and where the money should go that we have right now we first need to make this uh, data available and then we need to establish some real performance metrics that would um, you know give us some idea of which programs need more money, which uh, programs need less. And the easiest way to kind of start that, you know, let's just go back to square, let's go back to square one. We will be doing some budgeting where, you know, nothing is escaping scrutiny at this point. And, and then going forward, what we, uh, what um, my paper with Coriana talked about is when you're preparing for a recession, one of the biggest things is having money set aside. Um, these rainy day funds, this budget reserve fund, Missouri has one of the uh, smallest and least accessible ones in the country. 
And so um, as we saw with the pandemic, uh, revenues can fall very quickly. And right now revenues are up. There's all this federal money. And so let's put some money away for when, uh, whenever the time comes that we're gonna need it because as, uh, as a lot of people have um, yeah, heard, there's a lot of money going to education. There's a lot of money going to healthcare, higher ed. Um, you know, those are pretty important things. And so whenever uh, revenues go down, there's a lot of tough decisions that have to be made if you don't have money sitting aside for uh, how to keep the government running. So those are a few kind of more core uh, um, issues to address. And that's on top of, you know, some of the more fundamental um, uses for the um, relief funds that we uh, outlined in our coming up for air uh, document a few months ago. And has anything been pre-filed that has caught your eye? Uh, the, there's one thing that, um, come I, it's a, a Medicaid stabilization fund. And so it's an idea to try to put some money away for when Medicaid uh, costs go over. Uh, what we're seeing is that Medicaid enrollment has grown in 21 consecutive months. So the state's uh, Medicaid enrollment is over 1.1 million, which is the highest ever. We just expanded Medicaid a little over two months ago, and we've got over 14,000 uh, new Missourians on, on that expanded version of the program. So we have a lot of costs there. And, you know, inflation doesn't just, uh, doesn't just impact some of these other costs. You, you, also, you also are going to be seeing it on the revenue and uh, budgetary side. It's going to hit both sides of the budget. And so having money set aside is going to be very important. Thank you, Elias. Corianna Byer, occupational licensing reform. In 2020, uh, we had some success. Remind everyone what that was, and then how are we going to build on it in 2022? Yeah, so Patrick Ishmael touched on this a little bit, but we had the um, occupational licensing reciprocity in 2020, which means that um, anyone that has a state license in any other state can come into Missouri and they can use their out-of-state license kind of as a way to get their in-state license. So even if the requirements are a little bit different, if they are qualified in a different state, they're now qualified in Missouri. And that's great because there was times when people would have to maybe go back to school, take all these additional courses to do the exact same thing here that they would do at their old state, a job they've had sometimes for decades. Um, and so it kept people from moving to different states. If you can't keep your job when you move, you probably wouldn't move. Um, so that was a great step forward. And it was, we were one of maybe the first handful of states to do that. So it was a great step for Missouri. Um, so now moving forward, I know you're gonna ask me about moving forward. So um, moving forward, we wanna kind of keep our foot on the gas and not say, we already did this great thing, now we're done. We wanna keep moving forward with that. So the biggest thing that we would like to see happen is a sunset provision for all occupational licenses and occupational licensing boards. So occupational license regulations, like the rules, what you have to do to get the license, they're established by the licensing board, which is generally um, majority comprised of people who hold that license. Um, and so those are people that directly benefit from holding their license, but also uh, making it harder for others to hold their license. You'd rather you know, compete against 10 people than 100 people in your specific job market. And that can kind of lead to a lot of overly burdensome regulations in this occupational licensing. People have to wade through a ton of red tape, pay a ton of fees, get a lot of extra education just to 
do their job, their chosen job. They just want a job. Um, and so this can keep them from working. And so we think that having the legislator take a look at these rules and regulations and the Occupational Licensing Board would be a good time to get an outside perspective and really look and see, is it too restrictive to get this license? Is there a reason, for example, that cosmetologists have to get uh, 1,500 hours of education before they're able to cut your hair? Maybe not. And so if we sunset these um, occupational licenses and the Occupational Licensing Board, every few years, the legislature would have to really look, hopefully, really look at um, these regulations, the occupational license and the board and decide if there's anything in there that's not working, that's too restrictive and is way too harsh on workers. I wanna remind viewers that they can submit their questions using the Q&A box below. Koriana, has anything in pre-filing caught your eye? Um, I haven't looked in about a day or two, and if you know how it works, there could be hundreds more. Um, but what I've seen mostly is what we usually see, which are smaller things that are uh, pre-filed, um, people that kind of know little niche areas within the occupational licensing that they want to change a little bit. Um, we always have a few new occupational licenses that people want to impose. Um, so hopefully we won't have much of that go on. Um, but I haven't seen anything that would be a really big step. I'm hoping that we don't just kind of back up since we've already put ourselves in a good position. So hopefully we'll see something good moving forward. All right, thank you. Uh, Jacob Puckett. So there's been a lot of talk in the St. Louis area, Missouri, uh, about Spire and energy costs and natural gas. And uh, uh, this week at showmeets.org, you have a blog post up uh, about Missouri receiving a D from a University of Texas study about uh, electric competition and your item in the 2022 blueprint is uh, increasing retail electric competition in Missouri. So just kind of lay it out for us. What's the problem and uh, how are you personally gonna fix it? That's right, Zach. So in Missouri, customers only get one choice for their electric provider and that's their local monopoly electric utility. And this monopoly model where you have one company in charge of the entire electric, electric, electric service provision process, that's generation, transmission and distribution, and then ultimately retail sale, now, to put it simply, it's outdated and Missourians are paying the price. Since 2008, Missouri prices have risen the fourth fastest in the country. And we used to have low prices, but not anymore. We're, we're decidedly average with the, with the electricity prices that we pay here. And there is something that policymakers could do to fix this. If they check out my blueprint page uh, and this year's blueprint, Missouri could look to the 14 other states that allow customers to choose from competing electric service providers and allow those utilities to compete for their customers. Uh, because compared to states that have competitive electricity markets, Missouri's doing very poorly, and the proof for this is in the prices. Even after taking inflation into account, since 2008, when, when these 14 states had their electricity markets fully competitive and fully matured, uh, the average cust customer in competitive states saw their electricity prices decrease 17%, whereas during the same time, the average Missourian saw his prices go up 17%. So these competitive states are a mirror image of what's happened in Missouri, and, and that's to their benefit and to our detriment. 
And if lawmakers want a close to home, very material example of who to follow, this, this might be tough, tough for us in Missouri to hear, but we can look just across the river to our neighbors in Illinois uh, who have a competitive electricity market that's been working very well for them. Uh, at the same time, our monopoly market has not been working well for us. Uh, in 2008, Illinoisans paid roughly 40% more for electricity than we did here in Missouri. They paid about 10 cents per kilowatt hour. We paid about seven cents. Now it's about even at about nine and a half, nine and a half cents a piece. So taking into account inflation, their prices have gone down 13%. And again, our prices have gone up 17%. So again, when you look at the average of all these states, customers in states that have competitive electricity markets are saving money because their legislators have allowed them to have a competitive market. Uh, there, there are other benefits to this too, not just in the prices. Uh, electricity competition is great for businesses. Businesses want flexibility with their electric service providers. We've seen this all over the country uh, when, when the question has come up either on referendums or before state legislators of whether or not uh, a state should adopt a competitive market. Businesses say yes, they want to be able to negotiate their prices uh, and and when, they, when they're in monopolized states and the prices go up with no end in sight, you know, the other option for them is just to leave. And we've seen that happen too. That's even happened here in Missouri over on the Western side of the state by Kansas City. Uh, there, there's another benefit for lots of residential people who want to put solar panels on the roof. Uh, competitive electricity markets are great for this as well. It's easier to integrate customer generation into competitive markets than it is to integrate them into monopoly markets. So if, if there's one simple policy solution, it's allowing customers to choose from competing electric service providers for their electric service. And have you seen anything in pre-filing that gives you hope or are we all doomed to uh, pay <laughs> soaring electric prices? We are not doomed. It has not been pre-filed yet, but uh, there, there are many rumors that a bill to allow electric competition will be filed this year. Uh, I've, I've spoken to some people who are very interested in this, and uh, the bill right now would allow commercial and industrial customers to access this before residential customers, which, in my opinion, I think they should all be allowed at the same time, but it's a step in the right direction. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing this pre-file. All right, great. Thank you, Jacob. All right, to wrap up, it is the back page of our blueprint um, available now at showmeinstitute.org. Patrick, it is the Missouri Parents Bill of Rights. What's in it? Why did we release it? And what do you think the outlook is for the 2022 legislative session? So the Missouri Parents Bill of Rights, I think, is a logical extension of a lot of the transparency work that we've done, uh, not only in the last four or five years, but also in the last probably six months or so. Uh, we've been conducting our Show Me Curricula project for about three or four months, asking districts, what are you teaching kids? Uh, and we sent 2,700 Sunshine Law requests to districts and to schools asking, you know, that simple question. And, you know, just like with cities and with other local entities of, of government, uh, the answers were incomplete, they were misleading, uh, they would try to charge us, uh, in the case of the Lee Summit School District, $140,000 uh, for their full year of curricula and, and lesson plans. 
uh, Springfield's been squirrely and now they're being sued by the state over it. Um, uh, the St. Louis Public School District initially said that they uh, didn't have anything that matched our request. And uh, as it turned out, they did. And so when you can't rely necessarily on schools and school districts to be straight with you about what they're teaching kids, there, there does have to be, I think, a reaffirmation of what parents' rights are when what taxpayers' rights are. And so the Missouri Parents' Bill of Rights tries to outline exactly what we think that those rights should be uh, when parents are educating their kids. Uh, those rights should include being able to see what's being taught to kids, the right to see what's being taught to kids. Uh, those rights include uh, the right to see how uh, school districts are spending their money, you know, who they're bringing in uh, as speakers, for instance, uh, the right to know how schools are performing. You know, Susan just released a terrific project that, you know, doing the job that the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education didn't do, which is to make very clear like which schools and which districts are succeeding and which ones are failing. You know, sometimes I feel like Desi is in cahoots with districts and they're not really looking out for student and parent interests. They're looking out for kind of like the education establishment interests. And so having a right to see exactly how your school and districts uh, stack up, uh, that is part of this, this Bill of Rights. Uh, having control over your kids' health uh, care decisions, including, you know, if the state doesn't have a mandate for masks, uh, you should have the choice of whether you're going to have a mask on your kid all day. Uh, and if you're in a district that has a school choice, substantive school choice, uh, you should continue to have the right to exercise uh, those choices. Uh, you know, districts shouldn't be able to interfere with the choices that are set out in law. If you uh, want to use some sort of online course, a district shouldn't be able to interfere with that. A reaffirmation of what is already in uh, existing state law for school choice. And, you know, you can find this all on our website. It's, it's very straightforward. And I think there's a, a very good chance of some version of it uh, getting across the finish line. Uh, you're looking through the, the pre-filed bills so far, and it isn't, uh, you know, a one side or the other side kind of issue. Uh, it's, it's bipartisan. Bills are being filed on both sides that substantively touch on all of these. The one thing I would say that needs to be a part of this as well, that's sometimes being omitted from what's been pre-filed, is you have to have uh, transparency in performance. You have to be able to compare schools and districts to one another. And if if that if I were to say, you know, there's one deficiency in some of these bills, that is the one thing that I think should be added. But largely, I'll, I'll be honest, I've been very uh, optimistic and positive about what's been pre-filed. We've been uh, inquired of several times about what we think about certain legislation, which is terrific. We love to be a part of that conversation. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is about transparency and accountability. This is about making sure that parents and taxpayers know what their schools and know what their districts are doing, how they're spending money in their name. And to the extent that, uh, you know, schools and districts are failing to uphold their end of the bargain of being transparent and accountable, I hope this Missouri Parents Bill of Rights closes that gap. All right, if uh, no one has anything else to add to that, I will turn it back over to Brenda Talent. Thank you, Zach. And thank you everyone for joining us. Um, you can read the blueprint yourself at showmeinstitute.org. Uh, if you have follow-up questions or other inquiries for our analysts, please feel free to contact them. You'll see their emails on our website. Uh, we have events coming next year and you can check our website in early January to sign up for those events. Please stay safe and we wish you all have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you again for joining us.